My name is Sarah, and I'm a loyal listener of the When Dating Hurts podcast. Every single episode, I learn something new, and I'm amazed time and time again by the strength of each survivor. The When Dating Hurts podcast has so much great advice. It really highlights several of the early warning signs so that you can get out before it's too late. Even if you're a domestic abuse survivor like myself, it's still a good idea to keep yourself educated about the red flags of an abusive person. I have gladly recommended the When Dating Hurts podcast to all of my girlfriends. The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know, and that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. In this part of my conversation with Jen, she talks about the potential culpability of Mary's husband. Why is no one looking at the connectivity of Jude to the destructive path he sent Mary down? One point to note in her notes here that I'm going to circle back to later when I ask the question, why isn't someone other than me, maybe a few others, why isn't someone in law enforcement listing his uh, rap sheet, which I'm not imagining, I'm not creating this out of thin air. She's documented it on January 30th of 2019. She just makes a note in her general summary that a CPS investigation on Jude was closed on that day. Now, in her paperwork, I have found that his name was referenced and there's like a certificate that she has documentation of. Now, that's what she's reflecting upon. I don't know about the CPS investigation, but if I were to list the many things that are adding up here to why on this particular date in 2023 is this person able to continue abusing. I have evidence he's continuing to abuse now. There's legal evidence he has been and admitted to a domestic violence charge that he committed on January 1st of 2004. There's so much evidence. I'm just reflecting back. This man not only has a history, it's just astounding. So I'm going to keep going with her notes, what led up to the accident. On January 31st of 2019, Mary gathered documents and saw the divorce papers that had been drawn up. She made copies of documents and she thought they were important. On Friday, February 1st of 2019, she admits she drank. So if you think about that, let's just take a pause and think about this. She got home from rehab on Sunday. She got home from rehab on Sunday, didn't drink on Sunday. If you go back in time, there was no alcohol in her system the day that she checked in, in December, why is she self-medicating? I mean, why? why? 
What was the trigger? Yes. Right. So when you're going through, let's say these are five days of sheer torture that your life is unraveling, the abuse is getting worse. She drank, she self-medicated. So she says, I woke up to complete silence. No one spoke much. It is the day of the divorce. They were having to go to court. And according to Jude, after this, she is supposed to leave and will be gone for good. Mary says, I am supposed to find a place on my own without a co-signer. Mary panicked after their conversation as he stated he would have full custody of the boys and she can visit them after a certain period. For those people who aren't mothers, that is uh, devastating. It is uh, hysteria causing. It is life-changing. It is overwhelming. People need to give people like Mary Grace that she would drink to, drink to self-medicate because when someone tells you that your kids are being taken away, much less your husband who is helping you circle the drain and the only thing you really care about the most in the world are your children, I don't see any other solution that she had. I have so much grace for her and I, I feel so sorry for her and I'm, I'm very mad at him. To say the least. Mary knew that Jude divorced his previous wife quickly and assumed he was doing the same to me. She drank most of the day and tried to stay alone in the spare bedroom. The next day she drank, so that's Saturday. This is two days before the accident. She drank on Saturday, February 2nd of 2019. At this point, things are very tense. Jude is continuously coming in the spare bedroom and talking in a derogatory tone to me loud enough so all could hear. Her poor children are hearing their mother be denigrated again. Mary went to the store to get wine and stayed in the room a lot. With the boys having friends over and my access limited to only her room and the common areas, it's just easier to stay away. The day before the accident, Sunday, February 3rd of 2019, it was Super Bowl. She did not drink all day. She says, I woke up early in the spare bedroom to Jude throwing open the door and telling me to get up. He had been up a while and I could tell he was mad. He asked what I was going to do all day, and I had better look for an apartment and get out of there. The boys had friends over, and the spare bedroom is under one of her son's room, so she was sure they could hear him. He went on to say that I'm worthless and a drunk, a whore, and he cannot wait for me to be gone. Eventually, they all went to church, and I stayed behind. That's ironic because she is the strong believer and always brought the kids to church, and he would only go to showboat. That's what a narcissist does. When they returned and I stayed in the spare room and kept to myself, the Super Bowl came on and we watched until he left and went to the master bedroom for the evening. I went to the spare bedroom but did not sleep well. On the day of the accident, Monday, I moved out. I was sober when I left the house. Okay, so I'm going to go back into her notes here. I don't know if she left once or twice, so I'm going to read her notes. Woke up early that morning to Jude screaming and telling me I had to go, and he said I had to leave today. He did not care where I went, but I had to leave. He originally told me to leave on Tuesday, which would have been the following day, February 5th, but now wanted me gone today. And Bill, that's where I was referencing. I am aware that he's trying to get her to move out because the paramour is going to be moved in now. They had decided on their own that she would be moving in while Mary's being kicked out on this particular day. So he was in a hurry to get Mary out. Mary went to storage, the storage unit, uh, her storage unit to gather some clothes and then to look at some apartments in the area. 
she would need a co-signer. And he said he would not sign for me. He also wanted the tax prep workbook from our CPA. And she was working on that. She was once again given the I am drunk speech. She took a shower and started to pack the car. She said goodbye to the boys and left approximately 2 p.m. What is the I am drunk speech? Meaning Jude would continuously say that she is a drunk. Okay. The irony is if she's a drunk, why? What's the root cause? How do we remove the root cause of a sociopath abusing her? So she said goodbye to the boys and left the house at two. So there's one key point here that I'm going to make about some documentation leading up to the accident, because we now know that this event occurred. It is true. He, he was killed. But there's these words that I keep thinking about, killed, accident, non-aggravated charge. There's some things I, I just want to park here. Let me punctuate. She is sorry, and she never wanted this to happen, and she did not mean to kill him. She did not know she killed him. In some testimony that I've seen, she was asked, you were grossly negligent in hitting and killing him, the surgeon, correct? She pled the fifth. She was advised not to answer that question. So when you're being asked, were you or you were grossly negligent in hitting and killing, correct? Question mark. The reason why I'm just diving into that question is because factually you could look at the answer, yes. And I was, like, I was looking into this. I was researching that question and that charge this week. I asked someone this question. So when I have so many questions about her sociopathic ex-husband, I also have questions about why is Mary being treated in the way she is being treated from the day of the accident in the legal system and beyond? Okay, so why could she not have been brought up on other charges? I mean, I I understand that it's called intoxication manslaughter. I, I get that. I'm not asking anyone to excuse this. I just have questions. Bill, you may not know this, but I just researched. Mm -hmm. If you are convicted of killing someone out of gross negligence, it is a far less sentence. I don't don't know if it's a felony. I, I have to continue looking at that. Yes, I believe she was, her blood work came back that she was intoxicated. I'm, I'm not trying to mitigate that fact. He is dead. Why? That's my question. Why is he dead? He is dead because of, question mark, her gross negligence because of self-medicating, because of being abused for over 20 years by a sociopath. Would that have led to a lesser sentence? Is that appropriate? Many people would say it's not appropriate because he's dead. He was saving lives and he's dead. So what's the ripple effect? I know I'm I'm getting loud here because I just have questions. Is it appropriate that she has been convicted of and pled guilty with the charge of intoxication manslaughter? I don't know the answer to those questions. I just have questions. A couple of key points that I I mentioned, I, I use the phrase storage unit, which comes up a lot in telling the story of Mary. Jude moved her into a storage unit, meaning he put all of her stuff into a storage unit, all of her personal belongings, everything that mattered to her while she was in rehab before she came home at the end of January of 2019. He spent the time when she was away for a month to go through all of her things. And what did he find? Well, This uh, subhuman found her evidence on him. My smart friend, and everybody needs to remember what I said before in an earlier podcast, 
document, 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 everything. Please put it in a safe place. She tried to put it in a safe place. He found it, expunged her evidence, except for one thing. This is the only piece of evidence she has on planet Earth. It is a bruise on her back leg. I think it took place sometime uh, six to eight months prior to the accident. Why did she want evidence? Because she was smart and she was trying to figure out a way to leave and she didn't know how. And she was self-medicating and I'm giving her grace and I'm so sorry that he was killed because of this. It is an interesting thing that the only part of what happened with the surgeon, the only part that is examined is she's intoxicated, she's in a car and she ran over this man and killed him, period. That's it. I was likening this to Imagine for a moment that you're shopping and you're pushing a cart and I'm walking behind you and this elderly lady is in the aisle looking at pickles and I come up from behind you and put my foot against your back and shove you in the cart into this old lady, knock her down and kill her. That's what this guy did. He basically shoved her into something horrible happening at some point. But the only part that is interesting to anybody, to the law, is, well, you were driving that car and you were drunk and you killed this guy, period. Bill, you couldn't have said it better. And if I could have taken your exact words and given those words in print to the surgeon's wife, whose heart is broken now, and to his son, whose heart is broken now, and to all of the people he couldn't save because he's no longer on earth, it is the truth what you say. The fact is, he's dead because of an accident she caused. The reason, or more factually, is exactly what you just said. I want to. I want to really thank you for framing it up. I'm going to figure out how to um, rewrite those words and say them to her because uh, you just gave her some grace, and that's what she needs because she didn't want this to happen. Yes, and she's so sorry. Along those lines, I want to go into a little bit more that I didn't read last time, that I kept saying over and over I was going to read it. It is an appendix to the parole letter, to parole, part of my appendix in my support of her. Super important to hear the kind of human she is. She has this rare opportunity right now in 2023, if she would have been allowed parole, which she wasn't this year. She has an open pass, an open door at a prominent transition place in the state where she lives. And it's likely due to the following, that despite her mistake, she is a good person. And I'm gonna read verbatim what I wrote. Mary is continuously and deeply remorseful. Mary accepts responsibility. Mary is a protective mother. I'm giving highlights as to why would a facility grant her carte blanche, come in, open door, open arms. You must be a good person. We don't even know you. We don't know your story that Jen and Bill are telling. We don't know your story, but we think we know. So we're going to give you a chance because we don't think you meant to kill this man. Mm -hmm. Mary does not have an aggravated charge. Mary pled guilty. Mary has been rehabilitated, actively using your resources outlined in her parole packet. Mary has maintained an exemplary behavioral record within your system. Mary is grateful for the opportunities your program has offered and has earned many certificates. She was appointed dorm coordinator, which you talked about good behavior. It's uh, one of the upper echelons 
roles, responsibilities to be given in her state's prison system. Mm -hmm. Mary will be an effective law-abiding citizen on the outside walls of your system. I want to give an expose on who she is. Mary has a supportive, confirmed plan to transition into the community with and via this program I mentioned before. She maintains sobriety, meaning right now, and now for almost five years since the day, unfortunately, she caused an accident that killed a man. And on that day, she no longer was living with her abuser. Isn't it miraculous? I'm going to use a terrible word, ironic, that she is sober. Why is she sober? She doesn't have to self-medicate. She's not in front of her abuser anymore. So she maintains sobriety which is showcased with skills learned before incarceration via Alcoholics Anonymous. She maintains sobriety, continuing to use the skills she learned in AA during incarceration and also with courses offered by your program. She will also maintain successfully utilizing the skills applied via AA and that program that she would parole to after incarceration. She is dedicated to public service ongoing as before during and after incarceration. So she is a public servant. She gratefully earned vocation through your program. Mary is sober as showcased during probation prior to incarceration. So Bill, during the time, the day it happened until fast forward almost three years later, sobriety. She maintained sobriety outside the walls of prison. She's sober in prison. She is sober under acute and continuous stress since the day of the accident, which is also the day she was forced out of her home. Mary is sober while being undiagnosed, and this is my terminology, while being undiagnosed and without being medicated or receiving any treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Mary is sober due to her deep-rooted faith. She is sober due to the fact that she is no longer experiencing domestic violence because she is no longer experiencing intimate partner violence. She is maintaining her sobriety while she is under acute post-separation abuse. Mary is sober and capable of maintaining sobriety outside the prison walls when granted parole because she changed. And Bill, these are important words that parole needs to hear. If people were capable of writing letters of support, they need to know that people in recovery can maintain sobriety because they change people, places, and things, which she did starting the day of the accident. She changed the people and places. Part of that is no longer being in the same home as her former spouse. Yet she continues to experience the ongoing coercive control efforts of a prior household member, the sociopath, and no longer has welts or bruises and is no longer being sex trafficked and is no longer self-medicating knowing she was incapable of leaving the former spouse as referenced here. So I have made the assumption that she was not able to leave, although now that I've spoken, you can see she was actively trying to find a way by gathering evidence. So I say she was incapable of leaving, and I have a reference here, and it says in this study, one way to explain the various barriers domestic violence victims encounter when seeking help, and that there are multifaceted reasons for why victims of abuse do not seek help. Addressing the psychological impact of an abusive relationship is a critical step in aiding the victim of abuse and enabling victims to seek help from domestic violence. 
I want to, uh, I'm going to go with my questions. I'm going to give some details about my questions here as I'm wrapping up talking about Mary. So I've, I've asked a question to a reporter who may also ask a question of law enforcement. If the district attorney in her city where the accident happened is dedicated to victims of domestic violence, as it is shown, that district attorney is on a committee in her city. I've met him. I've attended advocacy events, bringing awareness to domestic violence. So if he is what he says he is, I have a question. Why is he not looking at this person whose name I'm not going to mention? I can't put his name in my mouth. Whose actions were the linear cause of the death of this surgeon? Is that subhuman a constant and repeat offender of domestic violence? These are just my questions. The district attorney's team prosecuted Mary, and I call it possibly with manipulative intentions. I believe there's a question. Was she prosecuted with manipulative intentions to use the vehicle as evidence when it didn't look anything like the day of the accident? So this is a district attorney's office who, from my point of view, prosecuted my friend, but why didn't they look further at him? So they're actively prosecuting her, wanting to bring up her car as evidence in the trial, but they, the entire law enforcement organization, kept the car out uncovered, and it was so damaged, it was so badly damaged out in the police lot for over two and a half years. So if they're going to show manipulative data in the trial that makes it look like she's a monster, the car was so damaged, it looked like a body had gone through the windshield. And that's not what happened. So you're going to manipulate a jury to think that she's worse than she is. And yes, he is gone from the earth, but that evidence is not correct by bringing the car into a trial. So that car was placed on an out in public in an impound lot a police impound lot like a display point absolutely i mean did they put a sign on it that said this car driven by a alcoholic killed someone i don't think so but uh, let me let me explain also that i say the words my poor friend i think of the poor man who's no longer on earth but my poor friend has been prosecuted by the the public opinion a court of court of public opinion thank you I mean, the, the articles that have been written about her in her city are, are so, I detest them so much and they're not accurate. They're not correct. There's many reports that say that she, making her look, I guess, like she has ill intentions, nefarious intentions. Maybe, maybe she's rich and wants to use this uh, high-end car again. The reports say that on a particular day in a particular year that she went to court to ask for permission to get the car back. Why did she want the car back? Well, let's go into that for just a second. She wanted the car back to possibly sell it or sell it for any value to be able to give the money to someone. Let's call it a charity, her children, maybe the ability to pay her attorney bills because she doesn't have the ability to pay her attorney bills. Let me say it again. I'm going to give props to her attorney who is a criminal defense attorney who took on her divorce case and is one of the walking angels on this earth. To me, it looks like he's doing it pro bono because uh, he's put in his time and he is one of the best people I've not yet met in person. Do you have a sense of what his fees would be? 
I, I have no idea, but Bill, in my experience, now that I'm a champion in the field, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more at this point, because of she had a civil case, she had a criminal case, and I believe a secondary civil case, which I've not been able to find, that was filed by the family and dismissed because it was an accident. Another key point about Mary I didn't make earlier, support for Mary. Well, why does anyone want to support anyone? I don't know, because shouldn't everything be about love, I guess? Her brother luckily still is in her life. I believe he's the only family member besides her biological daughter who is in her life. Her older brother, sadly, a very long time ago, was terribly injured by a drunk driver a very long time ago. So passing no judgment, I'm just giving this out as a fact, he no longer speaks to her as of a short while after the accident. Is it understandable? Perhaps. It's understandable, perhaps. A couple other facts I don't think I mentioned. I just, I, I found it interesting. I find it interesting because it ties back to the culpability of her ex-husband. Why isn't anyone looking at this? And Bill, I believe someone's going to look at it because someone's going to take this out of my hands. It's not my job. I'm just getting the ball rolling. The question is, why is the victim's family listed in their divorce paperwork verbatim as now owners of her valuable jewelry and the deed to their house? The house isn't sold yet, but when it will, they get the entire value of the house. I don't care that their name is in there. Why? I have a question. Why? Well, I, I have a question. Is it because together they are culpable? She caused the accident and he is dead. But her ex-husband, who I call the sociopath, is also having to pay the price out of his divorce proceedings. I just have questions about that. And then one other key fact, I say my poor friend had to endure a very long divorce process, having to testify, which re-traumatizes many people. While she sat across the table from her sociopathic abuser, the family sat next to him through her entire divorce. The family of the surgeon sat next to him. Yes. Let's just pause and think about that. And I have a big question mark I'm putting up in the air. Why? Okay, so here's another question. Is a sociopath able, capable, or I'll call it a malignant narcissist, capable of garnering so much attention and standing on a grandstanding on a stage to be able to show his wife moving to an ex-wife's victim's family that he is a wonderful man. He's probably saying he's wonderful. I'm so glad you don't know what this person looks like, Bill, because he has what I call a sugary, sweet smile, like syrupy sweet, a false smile that behind it is the worst animal subhuman, I don't know, thing. And it's scary to think about his face at this point. And I'm terrified of him, which is why I don't use his name in this podcast. Yes. How did that syrupy, sweet smile get to uh, convince the victim's family that this guy is safe? I really wish maybe in the reporter's effort who's going to move forward, they might warn him. I have a question. Does the victim's family smell it now? Can they sniff it out? Can they see what I'm saying here? Do they understand how dangerous he is? There's a lot of people who will testify that he is very dangerous. I'm just curious. I'm sure he portrayed himself as a victim in the story, and that's why they would sit anywhere near him. 
she's victimized me for 20 years. And one day it was coming to something like this. And I identify with you. Yeah, absolutely. I just think about the long rap sheet that that's how I can say that I summarize who he is just a very long rap sheet. I've, I've started to make my own rap sheet. If someone in law enforcement wants it through this reporter, I've, I've got all of it. I look at documents that, that have his name on them where he admits to domestic violence many, many years ago. For people listening, please remember this. This is what I'm telling my friend whose friend I hope will listen to this and all of your podcasts to help herself get out or listen to my friend as she's trying to help her get out. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. If it's documented, uh, let me think about the time frame. 17 years prior to when Mary caused an accident that killed someone. If it's documented and he admitted to domestic violence, if it's, if it's documented, then how did this happen? Because she was still suffering domestic violence in an acute fashion when, when she caused the accident. Okay, one of the key point about that, the admitting to domestic violence back then, 17 years prior. One thing I remember, don't know if I mentioned this before, I'm trying to go back to the exact words she told me about that day, January 1st of 2004. Someone called the police and that's how the police interacted with him. He went to jail for a night. Well, were they arguing? Was he yelling at her? I have a question I'll ask my friend in further detail. Did he put her in the car, in her car at that time with no identification? Was he getting in the car to drive her to a place where he would have harmed her and removed her from, from earth? I think that's what she told me. And uh, it terrifies me that she was in his presence. Okay. Now, when you just mentioned what you just did, that little, that snapshot you gave us of that story. That's Mary and Jude in 2004, even? Correct. Okay. You knew her back then, right? Did, yes. How far back do you go with her? 25 years, almost exactly. Right. So a couple calls to action, which is my favorite. Everybody, please, within the sound of my voice, please listen to the Barbara Walker episode, part three of three specifically. The entire series is important. I, I don't, let me see if I can bring up the episode number here on my phone. Listen to it. She says things that are so important for people who just want to become educated. How do we do what we do? The date of the podcast is November 9th, 2023. Barbara Walker, part three of three. Yes, listen to parts one and two. I'm going to go finish this one. To get in the mindset of why it is so hard to leave. I'm going to tell you my summary of this, and I'm only 25 minutes in thus far. She did it right, at least 25 minutes in. She was. She was leaving. She was talking to law enforcement. She was trying to tell law enforcement her kids were safe. She was trying to keep herself safe. I'm just going to tell you that that, this episode is literally one of the most powerful things I've ever heard in my life. So thank you, Bill. Let me just say this, is that after it was all said and done, and of course, she's alive or she wouldn't be talking in the interview. She sounds perfectly healthy. But after it was all said and done and time had passed and she was uh, medically brought back, let's say, her doctor said it is a miracle. Two things. One, that you're alive. And two, that you're not paralyzed in some way. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. 
So someone was watching out for her. She, she just had to live. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful to her. I don't know if she's going to hear this, but I'm so thankful to her to have the courage to speak because it's, it's helped me. It's going to help my friend and my friend's friend. So there's something unrelated I wanted to bring to your attention. In my research, in a lot of testimony I was reading through, I'm not making a judgment. I am not a clinician. I'm going to put a word out there for people to look into. I'm going to tell you my experience, what I think, what I think I know. This is not a judgment. I am not a medical doctor. When men inject themselves with testosterone, sometimes there are side effects. Sometimes there are side effects that develop into aggression. And I will tell you I've experienced it. I will tell you I am convinced as a lay person, as a civilian, as a non-medical doctor, that I am, I've witnessed this, I've been part of it, and it's not pretty. And I'm quite sure that Mary was experiencing this with Jude based on some testimonies she explained. Okay. Um, but you said there's a word. Was the word testosterone? Testosterone. Okay. Yes, testosterone. Okay. Yeah, injecting testosterone. And that's what he was doing? Yes. Do you think he just had a question about his own masculinity? I, I, I'm going to assume. Okay. In prior times we spoke, I mentioned Dr. Romani. I wanted to point everyone to one more important episode that I heard, and it, it explains the tales we tell ourselves, the gaslighting we do of ourselves. Regardless of what you think you know about the person Dr. Romani interviews, I ask you to please give her grace and listen to it from an educational perspective. So the important podcast that I recommend all listeners listen to or anyone experiencing domestic violence to educate themselves, this is Dr. Romani, R-A-M as in Mary, R-A-M-A-N-I, Romani. The date of the episode is October 5th, season two, episode 30. She's interviewing Evan Rachel Wood. Evan is spelled E-V-A-N, Evan Rachel Wood. She is a famous actress. She was dating a famous singer. Her tale is incredibly dark and it's incredibly helpful. So something important I, I think should be read here. The biggest sign of childhood trauma is trying to convince people who are hurting you to treat you better rather than you walking away. So that really punctuates and closes out my story about Mary because Mary, like many or most people, comes from complex PTSD, complex childhood trauma. She was trying to convince Jude, who was treating her badly and hurting her, she wanted him to treat her better. And she tried time and time again to endure what she did rather than walking away. As you and I conclude our discussion, there's a really important quote that now I just, I just love it. I think everybody can love it. It's by Rumi, and it is, if everything around seems dark, look again, you may be the light. And then last comment, I alluded to a comment in prior conversations. It is about my sister, and I, I want to give a shout out to my sister who has been a great mother figure, shouldn't be put in that position. I should not put her in that position. 
she saved me when I had to extricate one of my situations. And I will never forget what she did to put herself in harm's way and her family in harm's way, still dealing with the fallout of that. But um, she has been a great support to me. And uh, I, I will always remember how much support she's given me and a lot of uh, admiration for how she showed up. And uh, I'm going to dedicate this episode to my sister because she's one of the best supporters on the planet of me. That's wonderful. I'm glad that you, uh, that you talked about her. We all need somebody who can grab us when we're on the way down, kind of catch us on the way down. It's good to have one or many more, of course, but, but it's good that you have that person and, and it's still in your life. It's kind of like after she caught you, she can kind of enjoy you more because a lot of your problems, which we haven't been able to talk about, but the problems you're dealing with are still there but you have that person who knows your story and you just pick it up from there. You don't have to start from the very beginning. And yeah, that's a comfort. It's a comfort, you know? I mean, that's like a lot of people who are friends or family that you don't have to be in touch with them all the time to feel them being around you. It's just knowing you can, you can pick up that phone or you can send that text or you can write that email, write them a card now and then doing those things. So. Thank you for letting me do this. Very cathartic. I know it's helpful. Thank you so much. You did a lot of homework. It's obvious. People listening in can't see the papers passing from one of your hands to the other, you know, from the left of my screen to the right, but I can see it. You know, your printed out notes and your handwritten notes and everybody should have a friend like you in their life. And, you know, you and Mary are together even when you're not. You know, we all want to see Mary get out of there and get to brighter days and happier days. She's been for those who remember the first episode we've done about Mary, Mary hasn't caught too many breaks her entire life. You know, no matter what, she takes the high road. She's helpful to other people. She's trying to help herself out, trying to find her way. Just an exemplary person against all odds her entire life. But thank you, Jen, for coming on the podcast again and talking with me. I have a feeling this won't be the last time we speak. All I can say is, is thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. This concludes my conversation with Jen. Today, she continues to collect research with the hope of freeing her friend, Mary, from prison. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.